Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Crossover Cross Time podcast. This is our Thursday edition, uh, January 12th of 2023, Thursday of week 13. Uh, and since it's a Thursday, that means we're going to be doing our latest franchise focus. What we do on our Thursday episodes for our franchise focus portion is we focus on one specific franchise. Um, the idea is that over time we have a chance to talk in depth about specific teams or uh, all the teams in the NBA uh, for at least one kind of good chunk of an episode, probably. Um, I mean, the time kind of depends on, on different things, but regardless, we first focus on uh, that specific franchise, uh, their current team, kind of the last few years, their direction as far as if they're building towards contention, if they're currently contending, maybe they're in a decline state or they're, in a rebuild mode. Uh, so we discussed that, their players, their pieces, their outlook, um, how they've done the last few years. Then we shift to talking about a specific team from that franchise's history. Um, one specific season, that team, its players, uh, playoffs if applicable, you know, championship if applicable, those types of things. Uh, and then we also outline a specific uh, legend or player from that franchise's history that was uh, instrumental or important. Um, not always one of the greatest players in the franchise's history. It can be, but it can also be someone who just played there a long time and was was very solid and very important to that franchise's history. Um, so that's what we like to do again today. We're focusing on the Chicago Bulls, but before we do that, uh, we'd like to do what we always do at the beginning of each show as far as our game summaries as well as our key news once we get those taken care of then we'll jump into the franchise focus so let's not waste any more time let's get right into the summaries we have eight games from last night's action wednesday uh to talk about firstly the uh detroit pistons pick up a big win at home against the minnesota timberwolves bounce back win after their loss against the 76ers uh yeah big win especially against a minnesota team that was has been doing very well the last few weeks. Uh, and Minnesota, Minnesota, excuse me, they held a lead through the first half, and then Detroit uh, stormed back in the second half and were able to come out with the win. For Minnesota, they were they had their big three. They were maybe without a couple of key pieces, but um, 20 points for Anthony Edwards. He led the scoring way for them. Uh, 19 for D'Angelo Russell, and 16 points, four rebounds for Rudy Gobert. Meanwhile, for the Pistons, they were led by Sadiq Bey, 31 points. Uh, he's had a nice stretch for them recently. Bayan Bogdanovich returning after uh, missing the last game. He had 27 points, six boards, four assists. And then they had three guys who all had 18 points. Jaden Ivey, Killian Hayes, and Hamadou Diallo. Alec Burks added 13, and Detroit played a nice, uh, well-rounded game at home to get the win against a good Minnesota team. Next, a close affair, uh, Eastern Conference matchup. The Washington Wizards win a close one at home against the Chicago Bulls, 100-97. to And they win it off a game-winning three from Kyle Kuzma. Uh, the game charts, this was a fairly back-and-forth affair, although Chicago did have uh, a fairly substantial lead early in the third quarter. Uh, Washington led through much of the fourth. Chicago made it close. But then, as we mentioned, uh, Kuzma won the game for them. For Chicago, they were led by Zach Levine's 38 points on good percentages. They were without DeMar DeRozan in this game. Uh, 15 and 10 for Nikola Vucevic. They also had 13 points from Kobe White off the bench. Meanwhile, for the Wizards, 20 rebounds for Denny Av Avdia. Wow, that's surprising. I mean, he's he's... He's not diminutive. I mean, I think he's, what, a 6'6", six, 6'7", six, six, forward. He might be a little bit taller. He's not very stout, but 20 rebounds is quite remarkable. Uh, Out-rebounding Taj Gibson, who started at center, he grabbed eight rebounds. But, uh, yeah, Kuzma led the way scoring-wise, 21 points, three of them being that game-winning shot. Uh, they also had 18 off the bench from Anthony Gill, 17 from Monte Morris, the starting point guard. And uh, Washington picks up a win in a bit of a lower-scoring game. Uh, next, the Milwaukee Bucks uh, having a nice last couple of games. They have a nice uh, win as well in this one in Atlanta against the Hawks, 114 to 105. Um, and Milwaukee led big through much of the game. Atlanta made it 
a game in the fourth. They even held the lead for one uh, short moment, but then Milwaukee retook the lead and sealed the game. For Atlanta, they were led by uh, Boyan or Bogdan Bogdanovich, excuse me, no relation to Boyan. Uh, he had 22 points off the bench. They also had 16 from DeAndre, DeAndre Hunter and 15 from John Collins. They were without Trey Young's services in this game, so Aaron Holiday started alongside DeJounte Murray. Uh, they also had 12 from Jalen Johnson and 13 from Frank Kaminsky. However, the Bucks at a little bit more full strength. Giannis held under 10 points again, uh, the second time within the last handful of games. However, he did have 18 rebounds and 10 assists, so he found a way to contribute outside of the scoring, still being uh, very effective. Uh, the scoring leader for Milwaukee was Drew Holiday. He had 27 points, 20 points and 12 boards for Brook Lopez as he continues to be a stout presence for them inside. Uh, 13 and 10 for Bobby Portis as well, and 13 points for Javon De- De- uh, Carter, excuse me, as Milwaukee gets a nice win in Atlanta. Next, the Boston Celtics defend home court against New or- the New Orleans Pelicans, 125 to 114, as Jalen Brown scored a season high 41 points. Uh, you look at the game chart, uh, back and forth through the first half of the first quarter. But then after that, Boston took a lead and were able to uh, command kind of the rest of the game. For the Pelicans, they were once led once again led by C.J. McCollum, 38 points. He continues to uh, push his name into the all-star type conversation in the Western Conference backcourt. Uh, 18 for Najee Marshall, 15 for Trey Murphy, and 13 for Valanciunas. Those are the only double-figure scorers for New Orleans. Again, they are still without Zion Williamson and... Uh, Brandon Ingram, not to mention they did not have Hernan Gomez or Garrett Temple for this game, so a little bit more depth they lacked. Uh, But for Boston, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown doing what they have done for much of the year. As we said, 41 for Jalen Brown along with 12 rebounds, 31 points and 10 rebounds for Jason Tatum as well, 20 points for Malcolm Brogdon off the bench, and uh, 14 for Al Horford. So again, they only had a handful of guys in double figures, but their double-figure guys were a little bit stronger, and uh, Boston comes out with a win. Next, the game I was excited about, uh, the New York Knicks hosting the Indiana Pacers in Madison Square Garden, the renewal of a classic 90s rivalry, Knicks-Pacers, uh, two teams that have yet to win a championship since 1973, uh, one of them an NBA championship, one of them an ABA championship. Uh, but New York gets the win, 119 to 113 at home. Uh, Jalen Brunson has a nice game here. And New York led through much of the game, well, through all of the game. Indiana did not lead any point in this game. Uh, it was closer towards the end. Uh, New York's lead was biggest in the third quarter, but uh, they still controlled this game from beginning to end uh, for the most part. For Indiana, they were led by 31 points from Buddy Heald, uh, 15 points from Tyrese Halliburton, along with seven assists before he left with an injury. We'll explain a little bit more about that in a second. They had 20 points off the bench from Matherin, the rookie, who continues to be a strong sixth man for them, uh, and 14 points from TJ McConnell off the bench as well. Um, but for New York, they had their big three back. R.J. Barrett returned after missing a few games. Uh, and he had a nice game, 27 points, eight rebounds, four assists. Uh, Brunson led the way scoring-wise with 34 points. And Julius Randle, 14 points, 16 rebounds. Uh, great game for him. A great, uh, you know, their, their big three doing what they need to. Um, also, Mitchell Robinson, the, the center there, 10 points, nine rebounds, solid enough. But five steals and two blocks. Great defensive game from him. They got 18 points from Quentin Grimes, and uh, New York gets a win in Madison Square Garden. Three more games. Uh, the Memphis Grizzlies hosting the San Antonio Spurs for the second time in a couple of days, and they once again get the win, 135 to 129. Uh, their eighth straight victory, so that's big for Memphis. Uh, competitive in the first quarter, and then Memphis took a big lead through much of the rest of the game. For San Antonio, they're led by 24 points from Keldon Johnson and 22 from Trey Jones. They had 
uh, five other guys in double figures, including 12 boards for Yaka Pertle and 12 boards for Zach Collins. Nice rebounding effort from the two bigs there. But for Memphis, they're out rebounded. They out rebounded the Spurs. 18 boards for Stephen Adams and 12 boards for Jaron Jackson Jr. as the starters there. 38 points for John Morant, 21 for Jaron Jackson Jr., and 18 for Desmond Bain, as well as 16 from Tyus Jones off the bench. Uh, again, that brother matchup, Trey Jones and Tyus Jones. Uh, Tyus still showing even off the bench. He's kind of the better of the two, but you know, a nice matchup. Either way, but Memphis gets the win there against San Antonio. Uh, next, the Denver Nuggets uh, thrash the Phoenix Suns. The Suns coming off that surprise win against the Warriors, uh, but not able to sustain it on a back-to-back. They lose to the Denver Nuggets in Denver, 126-97. to um, A big win for Denver. They led big through much of the game. Wasn't really all that close. For Phoenix, again, they're without Devin Booker, without Chris Paul, without DeAndre Ayton. So they're working with reserves. They had six guys, or five guys, excuse me, in double figures. Leading score, Torrey Craig was 16. Um, Just, you know, not enough guys to work with, in a sense. And uh, Denver gets an easy win. Jokic, another big game, 21 points, 18 rebounds, 9 assists. Doing what he's done all year. 21 from Bones Highland off the bench. And they also had five other guys in double figures to get a big win at home. And finally, the Phoenix Suns win big at home against the Houston Rockets, 135 to 115. Uh, Sabonis picks up his 18th straight double-double, which is pretty remarkable. It was a fairly competitive game, but then Sacramento got real hot in the fourth quarter and and took a lead there and never relinquished that lead. Um, Struggling to talk a little bit tonight. Regardless, for the Rockets, Shangoon, the perfect (laughs) triple-double, exactly 10 points, 10 rebounds, and 10 assists. Kind of remarkable. You don't ever see exactly 10 in each category like that to get the the classic triple-double. 26 points, though, for Jalen Green. He led the way scoring-wise, although he was not a great percentage shooter in this game. 21 points for Kenyon Martin Jr. off the bench. Uh, and 19 for Eric Gordon. Meanwhile, for Sacramento, as we mentioned, Demonis Sabonis, his 18th straight double-double, 25 points, 14 rebounds, and 9 assists, almost a triple-double. They also got 24 from De'Aaron Fox, 20 from Trey Lyles off the bench, 16 each from Harrison Barnes and Keegan Murray, and uh, Sacramento lights the beam again. They get a win at home. So that covers our uh, game summaries from last night's action. Let's real quick talk about our key news that's worth noting. Firstly, uh, for Boston, Jalen Brown will not play tonight or did not play tonight. I'm sure that game is probably finished at this point. Uh, And he could miss multiple games, uh, one to two weeks, with an abductor strain. This is according to head coach Joe Mazzula. So definitely a big blow. And then Indiana also facing a similar blow, maybe even worse for their case, uh, guard Tyrese Halliburton is going to be out at least two weeks with both a sprained left elbow and a mild left knee bone contusion. Uh, So devastating loss. He picked that up in the uh, loss to the Knicks in New York. For both of those guys, we wish them the best in their recovery, and especially for their teams, devastating news. Hopefully they're able to uh, play well in their absences. For Washington, uh, Bradley Beal is cleared for, or has been cleared for full basketball activities after he had been sidelined three games with a lower left hamstring strain. Uh, So they'll probably be practicing at least for the next uh, few days and potentially within their next handful of games will make his return. Uh, Definitely a big player, you know, big for Washington to have him back uh, or will be once he returns. For Golden State, uh, Andrea Godala was fined $25,000 for his actions during the game, uh, their loss versus Phoenix uh, a couple days ago. These specific actions were, uh, the quote was throwing ball into stands. I think that was a bit much. Um, he, If you watch the footage, he you know, was kind of trying to recover the ball, hand lightly tosses it into the stands. And then for that, he was either assessed or technical, or he might've even gotten ejected for that play. 
then, you know, had a conversation with the official, apparently uh, inappropriate language towards an official. If that's the case, and certainly, you know, you can find him for something like that. But the ball incident itself, if you've seen the footage, I didn't think it was anything major. But um, regardless, he's fined 25000 for that. Um, a nice news story out of Memphis. Uh, John Morant gifts gear to a young fan whose ball was stolen. I read a little bit of this story. Basically, there's a young fan who had been collecting autographs from different uh, players and, uh, you know, notable figures for several years. And she was at the game trying to get her ball signed by John Morant. She's a, you know, Memphis fan and, uh, you know, resident of the area, uh, but had her ball stolen by a couple of adults. And, you know, just a side note, not that they would ever listen to the podcast or if they're the pe- type of people to do this, they wouldn't care about what people think, but like what, what kind of person do you have to be to steal clearly something that has, there's been a lot of time and energy put into it by a fan and especially a younger fan. And to just take that and, Oh yeah, these, this is mine. Now these are my autographs, just unbelievable, you know? And I couldn't imagine trying to console you know, that, that young fan is, you know, uh, their parent or whoever, um, that would just be devastating. But thankfully, I mean, there was a news story about it in, uh, in Memphis and John Morant picked up on it. He got in touch with the family and he was able to gift, um, I'm sure, you know, probably some autographed, uh, merch and things of that nature. One of the things was, um, a pair of his first uh, first edition Nike signature shoe, and that hasn't even been released to the general public yet. So very cool, definitely memorable. You know, it, it's. I guess it'll be tough to replace that in a sense if you if you're talking about years of accumulated autographs. But if you have to try and replace it, then that's pretty good to have John Morant do that, meet him in person, to have that kind of a personal interaction. That's phenomenal. So great job for jaw doing that for that fan and uh, Memphis, you know, reacting the proper way to that. Um, anyways, small transaction for the uh, Brooklyn Nets. They have waived guard Alondis Williams. He was on a two-way contract. So uh, you have to think they'll probably look at some other guy to bring on as a two-way guy, probably in the next few days or next couple weeks. Uh, funny kind of note from the heat coach, Eric Spolstra. This is probably just more, I'm sure there's a certain element of him that's, you know, taking this take of his seriously, but it's also a little bit fun. So on he was on the subject of the upcoming game that the Spurs will host at the Alamo Dome against the Golden State Warriors. We mentioned it last time with their ticket sales. They're set to break an NBA record for regular season attendance for a single game. Uh, but Eric Spolstra, he wants to challenge that record by hosting an outdoor game with 100,000 fans. He wants to completely shatter the record. Um, off the top of his head, I think he suggested um, the Marlins, uh, their home fields, home stadium, uh, arena, whatever the technical term is for, I guess field is probably the best for, for a baseball field. Uh, their current capacity is only 37,000, but of course with a basketball court inside um, a where the normal diamond would be, you'd have plenty of space to fill in, you know, extra seating around that. If this was something that was legitimately being pursued, half of it I'm sure is just him being, you know, having some fun with the media, have, you know, having a fun little take on that uh, event. But I also think maybe part of him is like, Hey, let's do this. You know, let's try and break that record. Let's, you know, do an outdoor game. They actually, if, if you're unfamiliar, they have had one or two outdoor games in the NBA's history. Uh, I want to say both times the Suns hosted those games and they were in tennis arenas. Uh, I don't remember the specifics, but it's not a completely unknown thing. So anyways, I kind of like the idea. We'll see what comes of it, but just a fun note. Uh, for Boston, their naming rights deal for TD Garden, which originally was signed in 2005 and was set to uh, expire at the end of 2025. They've renewed those rights for another 20 years. So it will be the TD Garden at least until 2045. That's quite some time. I don't know if 
I, th I think naming rights deals usually go for a good amount of time. I don't know if they usually go quite that long. They probably do, but it's a long time. You know, we're talking 22 years from now, then we'll be in the conversation. Will they keep that name? But uh, anyways, final note, Kevin Durant and LeBron James continue to lead uh, the all-star voting in their respective conferences, Durant in the East, LeBron in the West, uh, and they lead it overall, and of course, they lead it for the front court. Backcourt leaders for each conference are Kyrie Irving in the East and Steph Curry in the West. Um, and that gets us up to date on our, um, excuse me, our key news. So with that uh, wrapped up, our game summaries and our key news, let's go ahead and segue into our aforementioned franchise direction. Again, we're focusing on the Chicago Bulls. And well, I have some thoughts as far as what we'll talk about. But first, of course, we're talking about the uh, the direction of the Chicago Bulls within the last few years. And this is, you know, we talked about the the Bucks last week. That that was pretty clear cut. You know, they were building towards a championship. They've won a championship, and they remain a contender. The Bulls are in their same division, the Central Division. And their story isn't quite as clear. They're kind of an interesting, uh, in an interesting situation. If you look at their last several years, going back to 2019, 2019 was maybe one of their worst records in franchise history. Uh, their sixth worst at 22 and 60. Uh, the only times they've been worse was the <laughs> the four years following Michael Jordan's retirement. So. Uh, and then the the next worst after 2019 was the very next year. So when you, if you go back to a handful of years ago, 2019, 2020 area, Chicago Bulls were uh, a poor team. They had gotten Zach Levine, or they had Zach Levine for they had already had him for a couple of years after the trade with the Minnesota Timberwolves. And he obviously looked like, you know, the future for that franchise. But the team was still struggling. They didn't have a great, uh, you know, cast around him uh, or ultra-talented cast in, in a sense. But then they did improve in 2021. They were 31 and 41, uh, you know, probably not ultra-far out of the playoff picture. And last year was when they made a big leap. Of course, the signing of DeMar DeRozan was a big deal for them. The year prior, the midseason trade to acquire Nikola Vucevic was also a big deal. And 2021 to 2022, their roster that year was the best it had been since the Jimmy Butler, Derrick Rose era, just, you know, six or seven years prior. Um you look at the roster, of course, DeRozan and Levine, the two leaders, and Levine or DeRozan, excuse me, even a little bit more important than Zach Levine, even getting some consideration in the MVP type conversation. Uh, Lonzo Ball at the point guard played well. Vucevic, uh, they had kind of rotating cast after the Patrick Williams injury, as far as that um, forward along with DeRozan. You know, it was Patrick Williams at the beginning of the year. Much of the year it was Javante Green. Um, every now and then Derek Jones Jr., maybe Tristan Thompson. Um, in the playoffs, it was Patrick Williams who had returned at that point, uh, but they were without Lonzo Ball at this point. Caruso got much of the starts, and that's been a continuing story in this year. Their current year, DeRozan and Levine continue to be very good for them. You know, they're the two guys that are leading that team to victories when they win. Vucevic has. Uh, started in every game that he's played, and I think he's played in every game for them. He continues to be a very stout center. Patrick Williams is playing, you know, a full year. He's maybe not as stellar as he was uh, as a rookie, or maybe there's he's kind of plateaued, but he's still being productive. And uh, Ayu Desomu has gotten most starts at point guard because they're still without Lonzo Ball. That's the first thing. The Lonzo Ball injury has limited this team i think from being a more serious consideration as far as you know a top five or six team in the east it's been a devastating injury it's impacted the way they're able to play when they had him at the beginning of last season 
They were an exciting team. They were running fast breaks. And perhaps part of it was teams needing to adjust to what this new look Bulls team would be with DeMar DeRozan and Lonzo Ball. But regardless, um, they were playing great. Caruso coming off the bench, you know, ever since that Lakers championship has always been a great guy to have off the bench with, you know, whether it's, you know, getting some points when they need the scoring or just his defensive impact all the time. He can make some plays for you. He's a great energy guy. Um, but the Lonzo ball injury has been significant. And then I also am concerned a little bit as far as what the future looks like for Chicago when, if they're trying to take that next step and be a legitimate Eastern conference contender, the timeline is a little concerning, you know, DeRozan is not too old. He has played a great number of seasons in NBA already, though. He's played 13 years. This is his 14th season. Uh, that's a long time, you know, and he's 33. That's not too old, but he's getting older. Um, you know, Zach Levine, he's at this point, it's hard to believe, but he's he's played eight seasons. Uh, this is his ninth year and he's 27. So he's kind of in his prime at some point in the next few years, he'll start to maybe decline or has potential to decline. Um, and those are your big two. Vucevic of course has been in the league for uh, a good amount of time as well. This is his 12th season and he's a little bit older as well. I would think he's, yeah, he's 32. So as their big three gets older, that I think is, somewhat concerning i think they'll still be productive for uh, you know three or four years from now even if they're starting to decline getting lonzo ball back and then the depth has not been great for them i mean caruso's fantastic for their first bench piece and dosomu once lonzo ball is back and dosomu becomes the reserve point guard he's a nice piece and he's he's young Patrick Williams is young. I like that for their outlook. But then Kobe White has been a piece where he doesn't seem to fit as far as he's like the the fourth point guard or, you know, ball handling, distributing type guard when they have Lonzo Ball healthy. To me, he would probably be a name to watch out for. We talked a little bit yesterday about trade deadline and moves that you might see. He'd probably be a name to watch out for as far as names that don't fit well with their teams right now that other teams might be interested in picking up Kobe White would be in there then they sign a couple of guys who are past their primes but can still be productive Goran Dragic and Andre Drummond and Drummond has been fairly productive I mean he's averaging seven rebounds in uh, 13 and a half minutes per game Uh, of course not a great depth of scoring you don't expect that though um Dragic, though, I mean, 7.4 points in 16 minutes off the bench isn't terrible, but he is getting older. Um, he's probably mid-30s at this point, I would think. He's 36, so he won't be playing, you know, a great amount of time longer. He probably has another few seasons in him, but, I mean, Dragic older, Drummond is getting a little bit older at this point, and he's past his kind of athletic prime, or it seems that way. Derek Jones Jr., we all know about his high-flying abilities, but what does he truly bring as a bench piece? He seemed effective in Miami, but maybe not as much as you'd like in Chicago. Javante Green has played well when they've needed him. Um, Dale and Terry, the rookie, has not really had a chance to play. I mean, he's played 3.7 minutes per game, averaging just under a point a game. Hasn't really had a chance. Um, so you compare it to where they were the last few years, the Bulls are a, a stout team in the Eastern Conference. We can at least say that. And last year they were off to a great start, maybe overachieving. They lose Lonzo Ball to injury. They come back down to earth. Uh, they were a first-round exit at the hands of the Milwaukee Bucks, who you'd have to say right now, certainly a better team, a little bit 
uh, more depth to that team. They have more star power with Giannis. Um, but for Chicago, it's just kind of, you know, what's the outlook? You know, Milwaukee's going to be a, a great team as long as Giannis is there. They're going to be one of the best teams in the East for quite some time. You have to think Boston will continue to be in that mix. Tatum and Brown, fairly young, you know, great mix. They're kind of in their, in their peaks, potentially. They made the finals last year. They have a good chance to go this year, as does Milwaukee. So those are your two top teams. You have Brooklyn, depending on Durant and Irving. It's a little more volatile than, say, the Bucks or the Celtics. But up to this point this season, they've been pretty consistent, despite early expectations. So they're in that top three mix. Cleveland now, with the Mitchell trade, are a young team who's getting better and better. They're going to be in that top four. So now, if you're not in that top four conversation, are you really going to be able to compete with those teams in the Eastern Conference? That's kind of my concern. I think their roster makeup is not bad, you know, and their depth is fairly decent. I kind of talked to myself. I was concerned about it before I talked through it. The depth isn't too bad. You know, they have uh, younger guys who are continuing to develop. They have potential for, you know, draft options, free agent options in the future. But their core is perhaps just a little bit older than some of those others in the East that are in the higher mix. So there's a lot. I feel like there's more questions and answers in that respect, as far as what Chicago looks like going forward in this short term, if they can get Lonzo healthy and they can clean up play in the second half of the season, they should be a playoff team. And that's another thing short term, excuse me, they've kind of been underachieving. They're 19 and 23, 10th in the Eastern Conference. And that's below where I personally would have expected them to be. If we want to check the uh, the standings at the current moment, uh, if my internet will cooperate. Um, but 10th in the East, of course, as I mentioned, Milwaukee, Boston, um, Cleveland, Brooklyn, those are the teams in whatever the specific order is that are going to be above them. Um, but then behind them, you have Philadelphia, who yet again, they've got, they have Harden, who's getting older, but they have Embiid, who's kind of in his prime. Uh, New York and Indiana below them. I would expect Chicago to be right in the mix with New York and Indiana and Miami to that, you know, to be fair, Miami should be, you know, in that group as well. But Chicago's been underachieving. Looking at the standings, yeah, they're 10th. Atlanta's nine, Miami's eight, seven is Indiana, and six is New York. And New York's playing a great year. I think Chicago has that kind of same level of talent on their roster. But again, New York's a younger roster. So the age question, I think, is a concern for Chicago going forward. They're underachieving at this point. Maybe we see if they can start to string more wins together this back half of the season and slip into a play-in spot. They're they're in the play-in right now, but I mean elevate that spot and uh, make it into the the more traditional playoff picture. After the play-in tournament, you're one through eight. Once the playoffs start for real, See if they can be more of a mix. But even then, you have to think they're a first round or a second round exit against some of these higher performing teams in the Eastern Conference. And there's questions about them going forward. But they're not in a bad position. They're just in an odd position. And that's kind of been a theme for Chicago ever since the uh, the Jordan years. They've, in the few years where they haven't been the elite or the few years where they haven't been the rock bottom, They've been either just out of the playoff picture or a low-tier playoff team that's a first-round or a second-round exit. Um, and so it's kind of familiar territory to an extent. Let's see what the the next few years hold for them. Um, so that that's that as far as franchise directions. Let's shift gears then. We've talked a lot about the current Chicago Bulls and what they look like. Let's talk about a team from their history. Uh, let me take a drink real quick. I finally have some water to help my voice a little bit as we record, but um, yeah, a team from their history. And of course, if you think 
Bowles history, the first thing you're going to think is the Jordan years. And you can't deny that. That's the best teams in and potentially NBA history. Certainly the Bulls franchise history. After that, you'd probably think the uh, early 2010s, the Derrick Rose years, when they were one of maybe, you know, top two or three team in the Eastern Conference, maybe behind Miami, the second best team in the East in that time frame, those early 2010s. After that, uh, maybe you think the the pre-Pippin years of the Jordan teams or maybe the the mid to late 2000s before Derrick Rose when they had some nice playoff series with uh, Ben Gordon, um, you know, Luol Deng. We'll talk about Deng in just a second. But um, I want to talk about long before the Jordan years. We're going to the 70s. And the 70s Bulls, they weren't a very old franchise at this point. I think they had been established – um oh, let's see we can we can find the exact answer to this let's go ahead and pull that up the bulls were founded in 1966 the 66 the 67 season was their first in the nba and um they started off fairly competitive for an expansion team but then through the 70s so the uh 1969 to 1970 season through the 79 to 80 season they were very competitive. I mean, um, let's see, seven of those 10 to 11 seasons, they were in the playoffs. Uh, two of those seasons, the 74 and 75 seasons, they lost in the Western Conference Finals. They were in the West at this time. They lost in the Western Conference Finals. Uh, one of those times to the eventual champion in 75 and that's the team i want to focus on the 1974 1975 chicago bulls and regular season record wise this is not their most impressive team they were solid they were 47 and 35 in the regular season first in the nba's midwest division at the time uh their coach was dick mata he was also their executive so he made the kind of roster moves when you look at the makeup of this team this was probably the most deep in terms of you know wealth of talent of these 70s bulls teams and, and being contenders and you'd have to say with their record and the the playoff series they had against champions or eventual finals teams the mid 70s bulls were probably top five certainly top 10 but maybe even top five or six as far as nba contenders at that time especially in the 70s where there was maybe the greatest parity we've seen uh, in the NBA's eras, you know, you think of the sixties, absolutely dominated by the Celtics. The eighties were the Celtics and the Lakers. The nineties were the bulls and sometimes the Rockets and the Pistons, the two thousands, it was the Spurs and the Lakers. Um, but in the seventies, no one repeated as champion in the seventies. And so there was no better time, uh, for it to be a wide open kind of, chase you know the celtics were certainly contenders every year they won three championships during the 70s but as i said no one ever repeated as a champion you had teams like the warriors in 75 and the supersonics and the washington bullets winning championships in the 70s uh the portland trailblazers so there was every opportunity for this bulls team to be a contender and potentially at least play in the finals if not win a championship in the 70s and they came up just short. Uh, you look at their playoffs for this 1975 season. They won in the Western Conference semifinals, 4-2 to two versus the Kansas City-Omaha Kings. Uh, that's kind of an interesting footnote in that team's very interesting history. They did play in Kansas City and Omaha, kind of split time before just being Kansas City. This was just before they moved to Sacramento. And this was the time they were led by Tiny Archibald, who was one of the greatest scorers and distributors in the NBA. Sam Lacey was a solid center. So they so they beat a good Kansas City team and then lost a seventh game series. They lost three to four in the conference finals versus the Golden State Warriors. As we've mentioned, the team that would go on to win the championship, uh, they had kind of a similar record, 48-34. Uh, and their roster, of course, they had Rick Barry, uh, 
Jamal Wilkes, who was uh, not as good as he would go on to be. He was in his rookie year, but just kind of a solid team around him. And I would think that this Chicago team was a little bit more well-rounded and a little more deep. Um, and perhaps that's just my kind of naive opinion. I don't know as much as I could, I'm sure, about these these 70s franchises and teams. But still, seven game series against Golden State, had every opportunity to go to the finals um, against the Washington Bullets and potentially win that series. You know, it's hard to say. But uh, the transactions are definitely worth noting. The year prior was a better regular season record, but they lost uh, quicker in the playoffs. So in the offseason, just before the 75 season, they traded their starting center, Clifford Ray, to the Golden State Warriors in exchange for one of the underrated centers of all time, Nate Thurmond. If you've seen pictures, you know that he was one of the strongest looking, if not just strongest outright players in NBA history. At one point, he averaged 20 plus rebounds for a season. And he was, you know, a tremendous defensive presence inside. He was towards the tail end of his career in this trade to Chicago. Um, not quite the all-star or defensive juggernaut that he had been in the past, but he was still very solid as a defensive player. You look at his averages for 1975, he averaged 34 minutes a game, so he's starting to see his minutes kind of come down, but still 11 rebounds and 2.4 blocks per game. He was still a very solid presence inside, and it's just so interesting that this trade happens to set them up for you know, I'm sure they're thinking more playoffs and regular season at this point in their franchise history. They get into the playoffs and it's just a reversal. Now they have Thurmond against Clifford Ray, who is then now the starting center of the Golden State Warriors. Just kind of an interesting situation. I'm not sure if that matchup in that playoff series favored Thurmond or Ray. Of course, the Warriors won the series. But again, we want to talk more about this roster the roster around Nate Thurmond was that more consistent Bulls roster of the 70s. And a couple of these guys have their numbers retired by the Bulls. One of them, Jerry Sloan. For those of you, especially jazz fans, of course, we know Jerry Sloan as the greatest coach in jazz history. But before that, he was one of the great players in the early history of the Chicago Bulls. His number four has been retired by the Bulls. Uh, he's a great shooting guard not always an electric scorer, but a defensive presence. I mean, he averaged two steals a game this year, 2.2 steals. Always stout defensively, uh, nice rebounder for a guard. He was joined by Chet Walker, uh, one of the higher-up guys in the Bulls franchise scoring history. He averaged 19 points a game this year, uh, the small forward position. So those were your your wings. At the point was Norm Van Leer. Um an underrated guy and he wasn't quite well this before I say that he wasn't distributing as many assists at as he had but done in the past is actually his highest assist he averaged 10 assists a game one year for the Cincinnati Royals before he joined the Bulls um but he was still you know a, a 6 to 7 assists per game guy 14 or 15 points Nice rebounds. And again, he was a great defensive guard as well. Two steals a game for him as well. So Van Leer and Sloan in your backcourt, great defensive players. Uh, they could both, you know, Jerry Sloan, only two assists a game. Uh, Van Leer, six assists. Chet Walker, two assists. So they, they moved the ball well enough, I guess you'd say. Um, but they were a great defensive unit. Chet Walker, maybe not as stout defensively. But then you have Bob Love inside, who is your kind of lead scorer. He averaged 22 points a game this year. Not as great rebounding, although maybe those rebounds were taken by Nate Thurmond. Um, one steal a game. It was just a nice mix. I like the mix of this roster. Thurmond, you have him rebounding and defending inside. Then Bob Love can be the offensive guy inside and, and play a nice you know scoring game. Van Leer and Sloan defend at the point or at the point of attack, the backcourt, but uh, Sloan can hit some open shots. Van Leer can slash inside, maybe hit some shots himself. Chet Walker's your wing scorer. He's your second scoring option. 
And then their depth is very interesting too. Uh, their first guy off the bench, Rick Adelman, of course, one of the great coaches in NBA history. Um, a very interesting coaching mix on this roster. Uh, but he was a, a backup point guard, 6-1, uh, coming off the bench, and he was solid. I mean, a couple assists, you know, a steal. He was a, it was a good defender off the bench, so they keep up that identity with their bench unit. They have Matt Gukas. Again, he was a coach. He coached the Orlando Magic in their early days. He went on to be more of an analyst with, uh, I think, NBC at the time. Uh, but he was a shooting guard, uh, you know, or small forward coming off the bench. Um, an okay scorer gave him a little bit of help there. They also had Tom Borwinkle, who's a little more lower on their, their rotation. But in the early days of the Bulls, he was their starting center. So he was a reserve center, still playing effectively when they needed him to. Uh, they had other names that I personally am not as familiar with. Bill Hewitt, John Block, and Roland Garrett. Uh, looking at Bill Hewitt, looks like just a, a solid power forward, nice rebounder. Um, John Block, I think he was a center. Yeah, power forward and center. Um Again, a nice inside presence off the bench. So I, I like this roster, and you know they were great. They fit what the Bulls have generally been in their franchise history, especially at the height of the Jordan years, the Pippen years. They are great defensive teams, and that's really something that gets forgotten with Jordan's teams in general. Of course, Jordan was one of the great scorers in NBA history. I think he has the most scoring titles in NBA history, but especially that 72 and 10 team, the 96 team, as well as the 97 team, those potentially the best Bulls teams of all those Jordan teams, those teams started and ended with defense. Of course, Jordan was a defense player of the year at one point, and he was an all league defender. Scottie Pippen, his, the first thing you talk about with Pippen was his defense. And then Rodman, of course, defensive player of the year, one of the great rebounders in NBA history. Those three, your three best, are all-time great defensive players. But Ron Harper, who started alongside Jordan, was another great defender. Um, so that team was a defensive team, and that's been the makeup traditionally of Chicago. Not always the, you know, the ultra-physical, defensive, bordering on dirty type of um, historical defense as like a Pistons franchise. You know, the bad boys – they were def a great defensive team, but they were also ultra physical. And, you know, a lot of teams or, and fans did not like them because of that uh, dirty connotation or, you know, the way they thought of them, certainly Lambeer and even Mahorn. And then even the, uh, the championship team in 04, they were like the return of bad boys. They were more just solid defensively, but they had an edge to them as well. They had Ben Wallace and Rashid Wallace and, you know, they're even, the malice at the palace, even if that's not a great moment to reflect on, but they had that edge to them. Whereas Chicago's history is more just stout defensively without always the physical dirty edge to an extent. You had hints of that with Rodman, I, I suppose, but, but yeah, just this fits that team's history and kind of laid the blueprint for what would come with the Jordan years. Stout defensively, great all round team, um, acquiring established names to help solidify their unit. The Bulls would do this later on with Ron Harper, but they, the early Bulls did this with Nate Thurmond. And they were so close to being in the finals, if not potentially winning a championship at some point in the 70s, if not the 75 year. Uh, but they just came up a little bit short. But I think I've talked enough. A, a great team worth remembering and talking about even to this day. And especially because of the the coaching mix that's kind of unique to have jerry sloan rick adelman and matt gukas all in the same roster at one point who all went on to be future head coaches of solid success of course jerry sloan and rick adelman but gukas was a was an all right coach himself kind of an interesting uh interesting thing to consider but uh regardless um let's go ahead and before i move on i need to correct something and I just had talked about Rick Adelman. It looks like he was traded early on in the season to the Jazz for John Block. So he wasn't 
part of that team for long, but he he played some games in the early uh, early part of the season. I'm curious now before we move on, who would have been the backup point guard if Adelman was not there? Uh, probably this Roland. No. Um, maybe they just did not have a real true backup point guard. Uh, Bobby Wilson was a guard coming off the bench. Let's look at the playoffs. What they probably did is they probably just kept Sloan, either Sloan or Van Leer on the floor at most times. And, you know, those guys would be your distributors. But overall, their team kind of moved the ball around more, kind of more like the Warriors. You don't have one guy always making all the passes. It The team just moves the ball around very well. So anyways, Adam will not part of the team for long, but still a part of it. Um, so that's our historic team from the franchise's history. Let's talk about a player from that franchise's history. Let me get a drink as well so I'm not dying. <clears throat> Excuse me, so I'm not completely losing my voice here. But let's, uh, the player I want to talk about from the Bulls' history is Lou Alday. And real quick, before I start, shout out to the Bulls' website. I'm sure a lot of NBA teams have this. I haven't looked you know, in depth at this, but the Bulls website uh, has a tab for their history where you can look at teams and players, and they've got a lot of great graphics to go along with this. So I, I highly recommend it. Check it out on the Bulls website. They have a you know full page, full pages for numerous players. They have one for Lou Aldang here. He played ten seasons with the Bulls. Of course, drafted out of Duke in the early two thousands. He was born in South Sudan. Um, he was a seventh pick overall. He was actually a draft day trade, it looks like, uh, from he was tra- selected by the Suns, but traded to the Bulls. Um, you look at his stats, he was a two-time All-Star. He was an all-rookie team member and one-time all-defensive team member in 2012. Um, he was also one of the league's highest guys in terms of minutes played per game in 2012 and 2013, his two All-Star years. That was kind of his his peak of productivity or at least peak of team success. His stats those two years, um, 16 points a game, six rebounds, three assists, one steal, half a block on okay percentages, 42% from the floor, 34 from three, uh, 80% from the free throw line. Of course, if you're not familiar, he was a small forward, but had great size, could play power forward as well. Six, nine, two thirty ish. Um, Played much of his career with Chicago. Again, he was traded shortly after the selection by the Suns to the Bulls. And he was solid, as I said, you know, all-rookie team member. But then he was, from that point on, always a consistent member of Chicago Bulls teams that were routinely playoff competitors. He was a starting small forward for a great number of years, as we said, you know, nine or ten years. In his whole tenure with Chicago – 10 seasons, he averaged 16 points, six rebounds, two assists, a steal, and half a block. You know, his best years were those kind of averages, but that's what he averaged throughout. He was very consistent. Similar percentages, uh, 46% from the floor, 33 from three, 77% from the free throw line. He was consistent for a lot of that time, and again, he was a playoff contributor. Um, that team was consistently in the playoffs. Um he a lot of times he was the the scoring guy at different points in his career. He was a secondary scorer or even a tertiary scorer uh, behind, say, you know, Derek Rose or Carlos Boozer, Ben Gordon at different times. But he was always a consistent scoring threat, um, not always the most efficient as far as a shooter, but he could score and he could hit threes when he needed to. Um a great note from, again, the Bulls website. They've got a lot of great stuff here. Um, it talks about, let's see, small forward is as active as he was on the court. This is, again, from the Bulls website. However, the small forward is just as well known for his charitable activities. Born in South Sudan, Dang fled to Egypt with his family at age five to escape civil war. He eventually landed in London, then moved to the U.S. at age 14 to play basketball and go to school at New Jersey's Blair Academy. So he bounced around a lot. Um, with his Luol Deng Foundation, he and his family have done everything from build basketball courts in African refugee camps to donate computers to refugees to personally running basketball camps and providing camp scholarships to children in London every year. Um, 
so outside of a very good player, he was a great uh, community guy for his own home community, but also I think in Chicago, I'm sure he did some, you know, some similar charitable type things, um, philanthropy of some sort. Um, in 2007, he won the NBA's Sportsmanship Award, uh, the Joe Dumars Sportsmanship Award. So again, that's a kudos to who he was off of the court as well as on the court. Um, as we mentioned, two-time All-Star, All-Rookie guy. Uh, late in his career, he bounced around a bit. He was with Cleveland for half a season that year before LeBron came back. Then he was with Miami a couple of years as a very solid starter. Then to the Lakers in 2017, he started but was much less productive than he had been in his past. Then he had injury concerns, played a few games in his last season with the Timberwolves before uh, finally retiring or at least playing, you know, in some sort of other league if he's not retired at this point. But the the other point I want to make with Luol Deng, outside of all of this, you know, obviously a very good player and a, a key part of Bulls history. Think about his, especially as the playoff teams that those Bulls teams were as important, you know, they were always in the playoffs and they're in the central division playing against in the mid 2000s, late 2000s, the Cavaliers and LeBron James. He was the defender against LeBron. He made those series and those teams competitive against LeBron more so than they would have been otherwise. I won't say that he stopped LeBron or shut him down because I don't think that's quite true, but he made things, he made LeBron work. He made it, you know, more of a challenge for those Cavaliers teams. And Cavs, Bulls games in those years were certainly, you know, great because of, what Luol Deng could do to kind of limit LeBron and make the team make those games competitive, especially as the Bulls weren't at their peak at that point. So again, central division, regular season, they were always battling with the Cavs. And then certainly they probably had playoff series they were battling. And then once LeBron left for Miami, you think maybe they're not seeing those teams as much, but that's also the same time that Derrick Rose emerges. The Bulls really become a top team in the East behind the Heat. And those teams have tremendous playoff series that are of even more consequence, you know, conference semis and conference finals, Bulls heat. And again, it's dang against LeBron. And those series were incredibly competitive. And Luol Deng, you know, had to be the guy for a long time, either regular season, divisional games, play early playoff series, late playoff series to match up against LeBron and he was always a consistent force, and he was a credit to Chicago and his communities, both in Chicago and in uh, in South Sudan, in Africa. Um, a great guy and a great uh, player, underrated player in Bulls history and NBA history. So I think that just about covers everything that we kind of wanted to talk about with, uh, with Dang that 75 Bulls team and the current Bulls team that wraps things up for our franchise direction, our franchise focus, rather. Let's real quick give you our This Day in History fact. This Day in History, January 12th of 2000, kind of a sad note to end on here, but it's it's worth noting. January 12th of 2000, uh, Charlotte Hornets guard Bobby Phils uh, passed away in an automobile accident near Charlotte Coliseum following the team's shoot-around. Uh, he was 30 years old at the time. The Hornets game that evening against the Chicago Bulls was postponed and rescheduled. The nine-year NBA veteran became a member of the Hornets in uh, 97 when he signed there as a free agent. In 98, he was one of the four finalists for the NBA Sportsmanship Award. And he also started the Bobby Phils Educational Foundation. So he was a a, a credit to the NBA and his franchises. Um, off the court, he was rising you know, rising player. He was still developing. He was a great member of those Hornets teams. Before that, he was a productive member of the Cleveland Cavaliers and definitely someone that we lost too soon. Um, so, you know, just like to kind of pay respects, I, I, I guess, you know, re pay remembrance, make sure that we don't forget someone that we've lost too soon, who was a, you know, a solid NBA pro. He was a professional on and off the court and someone worth remembering absolutely for, for Charlotte and for the NBA as a whole. Um, 
with that again, maybe more of a sadder note than we'd like to end on, but uh, regardless, thanks again for everyone uh, listening to the show. We'll be back with you tomorrow for our kind of end of the week show where of course we, we do the game summaries, the key news, and then we'll focus more on what the weekend will look like uh, game previews uh, for Saturday through Monday's games and we'll maybe have some more discussion points to mention on Friday as well. Stay tuned for that. But uh, regardless, thanks again for listening, and we'll be back with you tomorrow.